You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I am one of your hosts. I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, Robert. I am doing well. How are you doing? I am doing well as well. Yeah, it's uh, been maybe a little slower start to the day. Well, kind of. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, there's been a couple of things, but it it maybe feels a little slower, um, which has been which has been good. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We were just talking about that. Like today um, is the like the first morning for a couple of weeks, I guess, that I've had a chance to just be quiet and be still. Like everybody's out of the house and I'm not traveling and it's it's so nice. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of traveling. Yes. We- didn't have an episode last week, right? We didn't release one because last weekend you and I were both traveling yeah. uh, to the same place. That's right. That's right. We got a chance to go to the North American Association for Christians in Social Work, uh, their annual conference, which was in Indianapolis. And it was, I mean, man, I had a blast. It was so fun to get to hang out with you, but especially loved the chance to just get to talk about the show with other people for the first time, um, like in person, you know? Yeah, absolutely. If anyone is a listener now, if anyone's listening for the first time after hearing us talk there, a special welcome, I guess, into this episode. Uh, (laughs) But it was really fun. You and I, uh, like you said, we got to talk some about it, not just like kind of chit chat with people, although we did that. Yeah. But we got to present on, you know, our experiences with collaboration with like other disciplines and stuff like that, right? Which honestly, like, outside of social work and I'm not even a social worker so like we kind of fit that mold anyway but then obviously that's like kind of the heartbeat of the show is having talking with faith leaders and all these other you know and in particular how how to use like online spaces social media podcasting things like that why that's an important aspect of that type of collaborative work Mm -hmm. Um, so it's obviously something that we both are passionate about because we put in this time and energy every week and yeah you know are active on some other social media, online spaces, things like that. And it was just fun to kind of think back through the the story of how all this happened. And I think I talked about how we had kind of just like stumbled into it because it all just kind of, we were learning it as we went yes. uh, back when the show started. And then when you joined, like all of it was kind of like, we're just trying to create these spaces and learning how to do it. And so it was fun. Hopefully it inspired some people in, in our breakout session there yeah. to say like, you know, I was I was worried about it because I'm not a podcasting professional or whatever it is, but like, hey, I can use these spaces even without like some kind of background in these things because that's very much how all this happened, right? Right. Um, so yeah. hopefully, yeah, hopefully it leads to some cool things for people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and thinking about not only the logistics of the podcast and, and you know, actually creating one and kind of leaning into it and figuring it out. But, you know, there were certainly educators that were in the room during our conversation or during our presentation. And so, you know, getting to talk with them too about like, how can you, you know, use these different podcasts and social media spheres to be able to, you know, weave that into your classroom and into your conversations with students and access information that perhaps, you know, might be a little tricky to access in other ways. So, so I really, I mean, I liked that part of the conversation and we had some great questions and thoughts and conversation kind of across the room while we were there. And, you know, there's, you always wish that you had more time to kind of like think through some of these things or talk with folks about it, but, but I had such a blast. And then, you know, of course, it was just so fun to get to see you and hang out and actually share space together and catch up and, you know, to not be just in our little online sphere where we're just talking through the website, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that was a lot of fun too. So. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. We also had some an exciting event happen in the Oxhandler home last night. Ooh. Yes. So is, I've, I haven't heard a lot of times what we talk about on here. Maybe I've already heard of because no. we, we might like we're friends. But, <laughs> uh, this is the first time hearing of it. That's right. That's right. So we had our very first lost tooth last night. See, oh, Callie. Did, was it you or Corey? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Allie lost her first tooth last night, like right after dinner. So she's had this tooth that's been wiggling since like May. And we keep telling her like, Callie, just pull it. Callie, just pull your tooth. And she's so scared that it's going to hurt. And I'm like sitting there with her and trying to be really, you know, attentive and attuned to her and just like, sweetie, it's okay. I'll walk, you know, we're here with you. Like you're just, you're losing a tooth. Like it's okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, in her mind, it's such a big deal, but, but yeah, Corey, you know, he, he uh, he helped her pull the tooth out, and we had letters written, and Tooth Fairy came, and all the things, and so that was fun last night. We got to yeah. kind of walk into that little, I don't know what that is, like my, some kind of milestone or something. And right, <laughs> but um, ways of tricking your kids, yeah, <laughs> all giving them money. That's right. Oh my gosh. So, but it was really sweet. She was so excited and like could not wait to get to school today and tell her teacher and her friends. And um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. So, that's so fun. Yeah. Well, should we shift into this week's episode? Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, this week we have Dr. Cassandra Vieden joining us. Um, she is in California um, on faculty at the University of California, San Diego. And she was at the Institute for Noetic Sciences for about 18 years or so. And she's coming on to talk with us primarily about one of her books, which is called Spiritual and Religious Competencies in Clinical Practice. Um, She goes into talking about a number of these different competencies and why we need to be thinking about them in clinical practice. And I think I mentioned at some point earlier in the show, like when when we introduced her, that um, uh, Cassie and I, we've actually been working together for the last like two years or so. Uh, Actually, no, man, it's actually, it's been three years since we first connected Mm. um, in Atlanta, actually. But uh, nice. But over the last couple of years, we've been doing some work together with this Templeton project with uh, Dr. Michelle Pierce and Dr. Ken Pargaman. And so it's been such a joy to get to know her and to get to know her work and to learn more about these competencies that she's developed. But, you know, I, yeah, I, I so, so I love the conversation, but I know, I don't know, I'd be curious like to hear a little bit of your thoughts or reactions to this one. Yeah, it's definitely it was definitely interesting as you know a mental health practitioner myself hearing about these competencies and you know as we think about kind of bridging this gap from both sides it's mm-hmm. it's important that we have people doing work on both sides which we've yeah. talked before about how our kind of passion areas are kind of flip sides of the coin um, and this one was definitely more towards the like how do we help mental health practitioners know what to do with their clients, like faith and spiritual lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's directly what it is. I will say like, if you're, because we respect our audience and their time and all that, if you are more on the, like, I'm a faith leader and I'm like wanting to learn more about mental health and how that impacts kind of the work I do, this is going to be a, a different type of conversation. Mm-hmm. I do think, you know, we always keep everyone kind of in mind when we're asking questions. And so if you say like, hey, I kind of want to listen anyway, to know what conversations are happening on the other side, what things I should be hoping or looking for, my you know counselors I'm recommending, uh, their like competencies, things like that. I do think there's you know some some good conversation in there. Yeah. Um, but it will be very it will be very different. It's more much more geared towards people who are providing mental health treatment. How do they make sure that they are competent in talking about clients' yeah. spiritual and religious beliefs and things like that? Um, so potentially like a little less listen to this episode and, and go, it helps your, you know, ministry day to day or whatever, if that makes yeah, sense. It does. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And I think part of my hope too, is that like, I, I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, that there are some practical takeaways for mental health care providers that come out of this episode um, that may look a little bit different for faith leaders, but I also hope that as faith leaders who stick around for the conversation, that they um, may find some ways in which maybe some more trust is built in terms of you know referring their congregation members to mental health care providers, recognizing yeah. that there are efforts that are being made in the mental health sphere to be very sensitive to and inclusive of mm-hmm. um, faith tradition. So I, I do yeah. hope that you know, regardless of, you know, if you are a faith leader, if you are a mental health care provider, if you are a client, or if you love someone with uh, mental health struggles, I hope you 
you know, can glean something from this conversation that, that might be helpful. Um, but I, I think that you're spot on in in recognizing that this is a very, uh, this is very, very heavy on the mental health practitioner side, I would say conversation. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, just to be clear because I, you know, I don't know, we're always trying to think through how things like, yeah. Right, right. Right. It's not at all meant as a negative towards like the conversation or Cassandra or her work or any, any of that. For sure. Yes. Um, you know, if it's your first time listening to a show and that you think like, oh, this conversation is like pretty academic. Maybe this isn't the show for me. It's not always that way, right? Like we we kind of bounce back and forth between who we're talking to and who we're primarily addressing. And, you know, so make sure you check out some other episodes. Check out next week's. I'm like, super excited about um, mm. that that's one that just like everybody in their daily life is like right yes. there, you know, yeah. is, you know, not a negative, just a kind of honest assessment of this conversation is going to be in more of a particular sphere than some other ones. And that's, that's fine that those conversations, like you said, are also critically important for establishing that trust and making sure that clients are are valued and heard and that their the treatment they're getting is, is integrating their spiritual and religious beliefs in like a good competent way. Yes. Wholeheartedly agree. I'm glad we're, yeah. we got, yes. So good. Well, I guess without further ado, should we transition to our episode then, I guess, with yeah. Dr. Cassandra Veden. Hey, welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. Cassandra Vieden on, who is the Executive Director of the John W. Brick Mental Health Foundation. She's a scholar in residence at the University of California, San Diego, and she's a senior fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where she worked for 18 years and served as president from 2013 to 2019. Her research is focused on spirituality and health, transformative experiences and practices, the development of mindfulness-based interventions for emotional well-being, and the development of media technologies to inspire, inspire awe. Um, she's received her PhD in clinical psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies and completed her research training in behavioral genetics at UC San Francisco. She has authored three books, including the one that we're going to talk about today, which is called Spiritual and Religious Competencies in Clinical Practice. Cassie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, we're so glad to have you. Is there anything that, that we missed in your fancy bio there? No, I don't think so. It's a mouthful. <laughs> well, you have a, a, an impressive track record of doing a lot of work for a long, a long time in this area. And I'm especially excited to have you on the show because I think I've mentioned some of your work to our listeners in the past, but, um, but you and I have been working together for the last year and a half or two years. I think at this, no, almost three years. Wow. Actually, yeah. that's right. We started working together three years ago, um, but this grant's been for the last couple of years on spiritual competencies. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Well, I'm happy to be here and it's been such a pleasure to work with you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I should say we go way, way back for at least three minutes now that we've been chatting <laughs> on this podcast. So, Well, it's good yeah. to meet you here, Robert. Yeah, That's awesome. you as well. That's awesome. I love it. Well, today I definitely want us to dive into your book on spiritual and religious competencies. But before we dive into this book, do you mind telling us a little bit about what what led you into this line of work overall? Sure. Well, I grew up in a family where my dad is a biologist, a biochemist, and he's at uh, worked for 25 years at UC Riverside, maybe 30 now. And uh, including now being chair of the Department of Biochemistry. And then my mom was a psychotherapist who trained in Jungian approaches and transpersonal approaches to psychotherapy. So as you can imagine, they had different worldviews about sort of the nature of reality and human potential. And both of them gave me these incredible templates for how to understand the outer world and the inner world. And uh, my dad was definitely sort of a atheist slash agnostic person. And so I grew up in a very secular household without any kind of an organized religion. Um, but my parents not too surprisingly divorced when I was about nine years old. And my mom went on to explore her spirituality much more fully after that. 
Um, and then I still uh, continued to kind of be able to go to the lab after school and be, you know, popped up onto a stool next to the bench and mix things in beakers. And so I really had this infusion of both science and spirituality and this, you know, deep commitment to the exploration of the inner world. And over time, I became very interested in meditation and mindfulness and Eastern philosophy approaches to how we can regulate emotion and how we can live more meaningful lives. And that drew me to go to graduate school at the California Institute of Integral Studies, which many of your listeners may not be familiar with. It's a place that brings together Eastern philosophy and indigenous wisdom with Western psychology. Um, it was based in San Francisco, not surprisingly. And so that has led to my interest in how spiritual practices moving beyond meditation into broader forms of contemplation and um, interreligious practices. I had um, the very good fortune of having several professors who were very strong meditation teachers, but also as time went on, allowing back in a little more of traditional practices from Christianity and Judaism. And so now my career has really been focused on how these spiritual and transformative practices can be usefully utilized in the psychological domain and even just in everyday life for people, you know, for coping with mental illness symptoms, for coping with everyday stressors, and then for cultivating these positive psychology qualities of compassion and empathy and meaning and purpose and hope. And so that's been my trajectory. Mm, I love that. I love how you were able to weave in pieces from from your youth and your childhood and like how that's helped inform kind of the work that you're doing now. I think that's that's fascinating. I love that. So one thing I definitely want to make sure that we're kind of all on the same page with is this word competency. It can be kind of a gauzy term in some spaces or used in lots of different ways. But when you're talking about competencies, can you describe what exactly it is that, that you're speaking about? Yeah, well, put broadly, competencies are really just attitudes, knowledge, and skills that people in a field should have in order to be considered efficacious in their field or to be able to be sort of at a minimum effective. And so the field of psychology, for example, over time has come to a place where they realized that we really needed to pay attention to the influence of different cultural backgrounds and upbringings and how they affect people's psychology, that it really wasn't okay anymore to treat everybody as though they came from the same worldviews and the same backgrounds, which, of course, in the United States would have been a dominance of the Caucasian sort of white Protestant kind of culture, where that overlay would mostly non-consciously be brought into the therapy room. And so a Hispanic client might be asked questions that weren't even really relevant to their experience because the therapist had no understanding of, number one, you know, that they even might have a different worldview, and number two, what some elements of that worldview might be. And the same thing happened with um, gender, where there used to be something called a male-as-norm bias. And that's the idea that obviously still persists in some areas that the male of the species is the norm and everything that's not that is sort of a deviation from the norm. And we realized over time that, you know, through the great work of like Carol Gilligan and people like that, that gender needed to be addressed as something that we needed to be competent about and then sexual orientation and age and all these different areas of diversity. So in the spiritual and religious domain, it's the very same thing that we want people who are delivering medical services or psychiatric or psychological services to understand that when people come in, there's a typically a very large influence of their religious or spiritual worldview that is incredibly relevant to how they see their symptoms, to how their mental state has developed over time, to the stories that they tell themselves. And it's not, un it's not unusual for someone to ask for psychiatric or psychological services and never once be asked about their spirituality or religion. 
when nowadays in the field of psychology or other mental health professions, it would be very strange to not ask somebody about their cultural background or their sexual orientation. So we're really just trying to catch the field up to the fact that spirituality and religion are a form of cultural competence that should be addressed in the provision of mental health services. And then the other thing I'd say is there's an two other, you know, kind of two forms of competence. One is that cultural competence, knowing that people from different backgrounds have different ways of viewing the world and being willing to ask about that and include it in care, but then also just clinical competence. You know, if you have a patient or a client who comes in for mental health services, you want them to be, be you want them to be able to access any strengths or resources they have available to them in your treatment planning. And so if you don't ask about spiritual or religious resources, you're really missing out on what could be a very big part of their lives and could help with their recovery. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> we totally, you are preaching to the choir there on that. <laughs> That's awesome. So that's super helpful, just kind of understanding what competencies are in general and specifically thinking about them in terms of attitudes, knowledge, and skills. And I love how you explained the value of uh, competence around religion and spirituality in light of so many other areas of diversity. But you, you know, within your your book, you talk about there, there were specifically, there were five different things of why you're saying competency around religion, spirituality, and even just the most basic levels of competency are important for us. Do you mind kind of unpacking what those are? Sure. Yeah. I'm not, you may have to remind me of what no, some of I'm the five are, but to. certainly, you know, the, the major one is that I think most people in the mental health professions are simply unaware of the body of literature that is very large and very robust showing that religion and spirituality in people's lives is highly related to their mental health. So I think I say in the book that, you know, just because it's popular isn't enough reason to bring it into the therapy room. You know, watching TV is something that people might spend one, two, three, or four hours a day doing, and we don't tell people they should be competent in watching TV, but we do say they should be competent in religion and spirituality because there's this very strong link between people's religion and spirituality and their mental health outcomes, primarily in the positive direction, overwhelmingly. So, you know, 95% of the studies will show a positive relationship between involvement in both organized religion and spiritual communities and practices, and also non-organized or more private practices. And so just because there's that very strong link to psychological functioning, it doesn't really make sense to leave it out of the therapy room. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So seeing this connection between religion and spirituality in terms of outcomes, that absolutely was one that you had talked about. You had had also talked a little bit in there just about overwhelmingly how many clients identify as being spiritual and religious. Right, yeah. I mean, there's still about 80% of people who are very involved in their religion or spirituality Um, many of whom will say that it's the number one orienting principle of their lives. And also over time, there's been some changes in how Mm -hmm. that shows up. One is that there are fewer people identifying with organized religion, but that doesn't mean that the people who don't identify with organized religion are not spiritual. In fact, a very large number of millennials and young people will say, I don't have an organized religion and I don't attend anything formal, but I would consider myself spiritual, but not religious. And that my spirituality is a very important part of my life. And so Mm -hmm. it's very, very widespread. And even people who don't have any form of religion or spirituality, that lack of uh, that or the Um, secular approach to life also informs their worldview. So it's important for a mental health professional to know, oh, this person I have in the room specifically does not have a spiritual or religious worldview. And I've got to be competent when I'm dealing with them around that as well and not make assumptions that everybody has this. You know, even something like a therapist saying, thank God, in a session with somebody who's very secular might be not very um, appropriate to that setting. Hmm. You know, it's interesting what I was just thinking about when you were 
mentioning uh, like younger people and millennials and uh, potentially the generation after that, right? In terms of associating less and less with kind of organized religion, but still having a sense of spirituality and things like that. I wonder if it, it actually is like increasingly important that mental health care providers address those types of things since they don't have, you know, maybe a, a community of people with which they can go with to, with questions and things like that, right? I mean, if you can't turn to your church or your pastor, or whoever it is, with your maybe existential type questions, then I wonder if it's maybe even more important that mental health care providers bring that up mm. and say, hey, is this, are you kind of sorting through all that type of stuff? Yeah, I think it's really important. I think one of the reasons that I mentioned in the book, too, that Shelley, I, I should say, I wrote the book with my colleague Shelley Scammell. And what we mentioned in the book is that, in a way, mental health professionals are becoming the playing the role of the wise elder. You know, it doesn't mean that they need to be or that they should be some kind of a spiritual director or see themselves at all as needing to serve a role of clergy, because obviously there's a ton of training that goes into that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's outside the scope of practice for them to do so. Mm -hmm. But they certainly can see themselves as the wise elder. And they're, in the past, the wise elder in a community has typically been in the religious setting. But without that... Um, you are being asked to be somewhat of a wise elder and perhaps not only pay attention to thinking and emotion patterns and brain chemistry and things like that, but also ask people about what is your source of meaning and hope? Um, how do you orient your big decisions? What are your values? What do you find sacred? Where in the world and with whom do you feel most aligned with your deepest values? And those are questions that can be asked by any therapist, whether or not they're spiritually oriented. Yeah, or that's not. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, and it touches on one of the other whys that you had, which was the role of mental health professionals is expanding. So I think that kind of ties in with with what you were just right. saying about the role of you know being like an elder um, or wise, yeah, a wise elder. Well, and I was going to say I love that you phrased them as questions, right? Because I know for some people or like faith leaders or whatever, right? There's this hesitance of like, if I send someone to a mental health care provider, they're going to kind of impress their values on them, which obviously right. that's what mental health care providers are trying to avoid doing, at least if they're acting ethically, which maybe is why we're leaning away from these competencies where we need someone to say, hey, mm. it's okay to talk about these things, but it's not, you know, kind of leading them in a direction saying, here's where you should find meaning. But all the questions that you just posed, right? Where do you find meaning? Things like that. It's it's more getting into the clients, like where they find meaning, where that their values come from, as opposed to you know maybe the where we're afraid of like oh they're going to put mm -hmm. their values on you. Yeah, I think a a very large part of the competencies that we're suggesting that the mental health professions should adopt and provide training in have to do with inquiry. They don't really have to do with, um, first of all, it would be impossible to learn every single religious and spiritual traditions, uh, the content inside of each one of those. And that's not what we mean by competence is that somehow you now understand the workings of every possible spiritual approach, because that's obviously impossible. But being willing to and being able to inquire about it ethically and effectively with a client and then use what they tell you to guide the rest of the conversation is more where the competencies are coming from. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, and you, and so you've talked about, you know, so you're talking about this in terms of where, where we are as mental health professionals, but one of the other things that you mention in these whys is, you know, that mental health professions are behind in a lot of ways. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to pair that with the the last competent or the last why for these competencies, which is that clients want to talk about their spirituality and religion. So those were kind of the last two that you had noted. Right. Yeah. I mean, right at this point, um, the field of medicine has actually instituted formal guidelines for training that medical professionals, in order to be considered competent, need to be able to address the spiritual and religious aspects of people's lives. Um, the Joint Commission on Healthcare, which is the regulating body, has said that when somebody is um, comes into a hospital or is 
you know, going for a medical procedure, that there should be some attention to mm-hmm. their spirituality and religion. And that's true in nursing as well. Um, Holly, you know, I think social work mm-hmm. is a little bit ahead of most of the mental health professions. Um, but in general, the mental health professions haven't done the same thing. And I think it's partly because they've been so um, careful to want to be a more scientific and a less subjective, more evidence-based discipline um, that they've sort of gone overboard and saying, you know, let's just leave that out. You know, let's not address that, which is kind of interesting given that a psychotherapist you know, would feel very comfortable and appropriate asking about the most Mm -hmm. personal experiences in people's histories and lives. I mean, very personal things, uh, but sometimes feel uncomfortable asking about spirituality and religion because they think it's outside of their domain. And I think what we're trying to say is these are very important parts of people's lives um, that are not outside of the domain of mental health and in fact are highly relevant to most people's mental health and so therefore should be included in ways that are ethical and effective and as you know as you were saying not imposing anything not sometimes not even suggesting anything just really inquiring about it um so a really good example would be just saying are there any spiritual or religious practices that have been helpful to you in coping with your symptoms Um, Have there been any spiritual and religious beliefs or practices that have not been helpful in your journey toward mental health? And just listening to the answers to those questions and then using those answers to guide a little bit more of the conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm, Yeah. Well, I'm curious if you wanted to comment on a couple of the competencies that you, you know, have offered in this book or share a couple of them and maybe unpack a little bit about, you know, what they are, what they mean. Sure. I mean, a lot of them, I think to many people will just sound like common sense, which, you know, is interesting in the, in the sense that it's been sort of an uphill climb to try to get these included. (laughs) Um, But, you know, number one in the, in the area of attitudes, obviously the very baseline is just demonstrating empathy, respect, and appreciation for clients from diverse spiritual, religious, or secular backgrounds and affiliations. And, you know, almost every psychotherapist, and in fact, in our studies, we've show this, they'll say, you know, I didn't really receive training in that, but I'm a hundred percent competent in that. <laughs> and the likelihood is that they mm-hmm. might not yeah. be without knowing it. You know, a lot of these are very, they're unintentional mm-hmm. gaffes that we do as therapists number one gaffe is just not asking at all. So having empathy, respect, and appreciation means that you would at least ask one time in the course of therapy, hey, is this a part of your life? Um, Another is psychologists viewing spirituality and religion as important parts of human diversity, as we mentioned earlier, along with factors such as race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, etc., And then also being aware of how the therapist's own spiritual or religious background might influence their clinical practice. And that's probably a little bit higher bar than people had thought about is really reflecting on your own spiritual and religious beliefs and practices, um, whether you're a highly religious person, whether you're someone who maybe has drifted away from religion, whether you felt alienated from religion or whether you have a strong spiritual practice, it's very likely influencing everything from the way you talk to clients, to the way you formulate their case, to what kinds of suggestions you make for them. And just examining that is, um, I think, really important. So those are Mm -hmm. in the attitudes domain. That's good. And then as you, you know, as you move on to knowledge, it's just very basic things like being aware that there are spiritual and religious resources for some clients that might be helpful to their well-being and recovery from psychological disorders. And on the flip side, being aware that there are some spiritual and religious experiences, practices, and beliefs that have the potential to negatively impact somebody's psychological health. So one of our collaborators on our project, Holly, is Ken Pargament, who's done a huge Mm -hmm. amount of work on positive and negative religious coping. And what we can show is that when people use their spirituality or religion in a positive way to deal with their stressors, that's associated with better mental health outcomes. Whereas when they use it in a negative way, that's correlated with negative mental health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
say you are stuck in traffic on your way to something really important and you get a flat tire on the side of the road and one person thinks, you know, gosh, I'm so glad God is here with me or, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm in touch with a spiritual source to kind of help me get through this moment that's very stressful. Mm. Whereas other people might say something like, what did I do wrong? You know, why did God abandon me right now? Or why am I being punished? Mm. And those are just the same exact thing that happened to both people, but they have very different ways of thinking about it. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Mm. If you uh, want to hear, listener, from Ken Parkman about yes. that topic, feel free to scroll <laughs> back through. Uh, I'm not, I don't have it on me, but whatever episode we had Dr. Parkman on to talk about positive and negative coping skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So another knowledge piece is just knowing that many diverse forms of spirituality and religion exist and, you know, being able to explore those with clients and not just thinking, um, even if you have a Christian client, there's a ton of diversity within Christianity. So you might think, well, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian, so I know exactly, you know, what they believe and what they think, when the truth is you don't. You don't know how they think about things or what their particular brand of um, spirituality or understanding of God is. So it's still important to ask them. And then increasingly, you know, we're seeing many more, as I said, spiritual but not religious um, Buddhist clients, Hindu clients, Muslim clients, um, you know, people from a variety of different traditions. Um, and as I said earlier, the knowledge piece is not actually knowing a lot about each one. It's just knowing that they exist and being willing to inquire about them. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I do appreciate how you had unpacked that a little bit earlier that, you know, it is impossible for us to know all the details and nuance around each of the different faith traditions, but to know enough to be able to invite the space for conversation, to learn from our client, let them teach us, you know, what this means for them. I think that's just so important. So I love that. So then if you move on to the skills domain, um, these are actually actions that somebody might take. And they're, again, very um, basic level. These are not proficiencies. So a proficient person in the intersection of spirituality, religion, and psychology, or mental health might actually go into the domain of recommending certain practices or, um, you know, making, doing things in the session that have a spiritual tone, whereas a basic competency might be helping clients explore and access their own spiritual and religious strengths and resources, or being able to identify spiritual or religious problems or struggles in clinical practice and make referrals when necessary, Um, being able to think, hey, I'm working with this client, what they're describing about their spiritual struggles is beyond what I can address. So I'm going to ask them, do you have a clergy member or a spiritual director that you would be willing to sign a release of information for so I could talk to that person? And then being able to work with a clergy member or a spiritual director or a meditation teacher in that person's life and just exchange information about the clients so that you can work as a team to help them if it's important in their lives. Um, So I think those are some of the skills in addition to what we've talked about already, which is being able to inquire about um, spiritual and religious beliefs and practices as a standard part of taking a client history in the first few sessions. Yeah, that's really Mm -hmm. good. And I, and I think that your, your point about referral is, you know, there are so many other areas in our clients' lives that we refer without any second guessing or consideration or, you know, to, to help them in, in, in various areas. So it, it makes perfect sense that we would be doing that as well with the, with our clients' spiritual lives. So Mm. I really like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, listening to all these and reading them here and in my mind i'm playing around with like what if we flipped it right so if we were to say let's make competencies for faith leaders in terms of yeah. addressing mental health you know okay faith leaders would demonstrate empathy respect appreciation things like that they would view their mental health as important aspects right like they would the one we were just talking about you know recognize they need to refer at some point in time and things like that they don't need to know all the information about every possible mental health thing mm-hmm. you know i'm i'm playing with that and saying this would be good from both sides you know which obviously we believe as a show uh but right. you know even the particular language is really interesting 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be, there are a few projects underway now to try to build bridges between the faith communities and the mental health field. And I think in general, it's worked very, very well. I think you mentioned earlier sometimes that faith leaders will be reluctant to refer someone to psychotherapy because they feel like it might weaken their the spiritual pathway toward whatever sort of journey they're on or awakening they're on. And it's kind of goes both ways, you know, that um, the faith leaders and the clergy members and spiritual directors, meditation teachers have to begin to respect that it's not always a matter of praying harder or going back and meditating more. And that Mm. sometimes those approaches can actually exacerbate a mental health problem. And then the mental health professionals need to be willing to respect what the client comes in with. And um, so I think if we can build those bridges between both fields and use a team approach to our clients' well-being, that's ideal. I mm. love that. Well, that's hey, really you're, on, you're on the exact right show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing, I guess, I mean, since Robert brought up faith leaders and, you know, we, we're just kind of talking about that now, I, I would be curious from your perspective, Dr. Vieta, and what what role can faith leaders play in supporting mental health care providers to be better informed about this area of clients' lives? Or is there anything practical that you would recommend to faith leaders in terms of paying attention to this area in clients' lives? Sure. I mean, I think there's a few things. One is if a faith leader knows that their um, parishioner or their meditation student or whatever field they're in Um, is seeing a psychotherapist, they could just offer directly to the patient, would it be helpful for me to speak with your therapist and open that door and, um, you know, say, you know, next time you go in to see your therapist, ask, let them know that I'd be more than willing to chat with them about how this part of your life is important in your mental health and, you know, get a release of information. And if you feel that there's um, something that's a crisis or very severe, the faith leader might even ask, "Can would you please sign a release of information so that I can talk to your um, therapist and let them know my perspective on what's happening so they could reach out directly. I think the second thing is one of the things is sort of normalizing mental health issues in their spiritual communities. So I did a talk with um, some faith leaders and one of them asked for some suggestions about how they might do that. And one of the things we came up with was putting a big butcher's block paper up on one of the walls in the spiritual community and using post-it notes to have people write, I have experienced depression, or I currently have anxiety and I'm medicated for it, or, you know, I had a breakdown when I was 25 and have it be anonymous, but put it all up on the butcher's block paper so that the whole spiritual community and congregation can look up and be like, I am not alone. I mean, everybody in this community has had what I'm going through and just start to break down those stigmas because in spiritual communities, sometimes there really is a stigma around if you're experiencing these things, then you're not doing it right. You know, you're not meditating Mm. enough. You're not praying enough. You're not close enough to God. And the truth is that's not the case. People have depression and anxiety and more serious mental health issues even when they are, you know, very engaged in their spiritual practices and to start to break down Mm -hmm. that stigma inside of your spiritual community and maybe even invite a mental health professional who you know is very open to these topics to come in and talk and say, you know, these things can happen and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong on your spiritual path. Oh my gosh. I love all of that. I really hope our listeners are hearing this and if you're a faith leader to consider doing something like this in your congregation, or if you're a congregation member, maybe recommending this idea to your faith community, but what a beautiful example to, to, to demonstrate, you know, this isn't something that we just, that very few of us have experienced, but that, you know, many folks experience currently and certainly most of us have experienced some struggle at some point in our lives like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think a couple of good opportunities to do that are October 10th is International Mental Health Day. 
Global Mental Health Days, and then the month of May is um, in the United States National Mental Health Month. And so you could even plan to do it during that time so that you, if you needed to explain to anybody why you're doing it, you could say, well, because it's National Mental Health Month, you know, yeah. um, those are some good opportunities or really any time. I mean, around the holidays is yeah. a really good time to, to do that and to make sure yeah. that you also have um, referrals available to low fee psychotherapy clinics mm-hmm. or, you know, a lot of times people will talk about reducing stigma and asking people to speak out if they're feeling suicidal or they're feeling these things, but they don't then have the resources at the ready. So making sure yeah. that you've got some actual resources at the ready, not just a suicide hotline, but here are five clinics right. that you can go to in my community that I've actually spoken with and yeah. have somebody on their That's staff good. who's like really willing to deal with the intersection of spirituality and mental health. And I think one last thing that faith leaders could do is also offer a seminar to training training sites. You know, if there is a big mental health clinic in your community, you could reach out to the training director and say, hey, would you be willing for me to come in and talk about the Christian approach to depression or the Buddhist approach to depression and just kind of proactively start to build those bridges? Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, you know, one other thing you could do is buy copies of the, my book and send them to all your <laughs> friends. You can, well, that's, that's you know. what we get to say. I mean, yeah. it is. I will definitely say to our listeners, especially if you're a mental health care provider, this is a great resource and it's accessible and understandable. And it's not, I mean, the research is in here, but it's not so researchy that it's hard to understand. Like you translate it really well. So I definitely encourage our listeners to, if they're interested in learning more and picking up your book. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, one question that we like to ask people, right? You've put a lot of time and energy into this research and also obviously like this book. What What's your hope for all this work that you've been doing and maybe even specifically this book? Well, what I'd like to see is that people's religious and spiritual background beliefs and practices are just routinely included in any kind of mental health care encounter. Um, You know, even emergency mental health care, there is time to have one sentence that just asks the question, do you have any spiritual or religious or, you know, other beliefs that might be able to help you through this moment that you're going through? And just saying those words make it clear to the client that you care about that part of their life. It opens the door for you being able to access additional resources. I know that most mental health professionals feel very overwhelmed by the amount of uh, patients they have, especially if they're in an institutional setting. And so all the resources that you can leverage are very helpful. And so that's one, just making it a, a normalized routine part of mental health care to ask these questions. And then two is to provide training to mental health providers as they're going through their graduate training programs and licensing exams and postdoctoral training, where the people who are training directors at these schools include religion and spirituality explicitly as part of their multicultural competence training, as opposed to just kind of assuming that it's kind of baked in. So those two things would be fantastic. And, you know, I was lucky um, when I was a young adult to have a psychotherapist who was transpersonal. That's what they called it back then. I don't know if people, some people still call it that, but, Mm. um, you know, that was a very integrated approach where it was the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, the um, biology, but also the spiritual aspects all brought to bear on the problem and just making that holistic approach to both treatment of mental illness and also prevention. And I guess that's the last thing I'd say is, you know, really Mm. when we're talking about prevention of mental health issues with children, with young adults, to teach them from an early age, if you get into a a crisis, here are the things that you can do. Um, Here are the kinds of resources you can access But before you get into a crisis, if you start to feel depressed, if you start to feel anxious, um, here are a whole suite of different things that you might try and make sure that part of that set of things that they could try um, are spiritual. And it 
shouldn't be the only things in your toolbox that you're giving people, but certainly they should be part of um, the toolbox that we're giving people. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Well, if you'd like to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. Um, you can connect with the show on any social media at CXMH Podcast. You can connect with Cassie at LinkedIn um, or on Facebook at Cassandra Vieden or at CassandraVieden.com. Dr. Vieden, thank you so much for joining us today. It has just been such an honor and privilege to get to learn from you and listen to you and just hear you unpack all of this knowledge on these competencies. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I think I would just say, um, first of all, thank you. It's been wonderful. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. Yeah, and I think I would just leave with a little bit of a cautionary note, even though we've really talked about how religion and spirituality are very important in most people's lives. Um, also to not go too overboard with it, obviously. And as Robert said, we're, we're not here to impose anything. So if you do work with a client and say, you know, do you have any religious or spiritual beliefs or practices that are important to you? And they say no to respect that as well. And that also doesn't need to stop you from moving forward into saying, how about places where you feel a deeper sense of meaning or a bigger sense of purpose or that there's something larger than yourself, any, anything in those domains. And that is a way that you can bring in spiritual competencies without necessarily having to call them spiritual. Those are just common humanity values and um, sort of, you know, the, the big values. So if somebody says, well, justice is important to me, um, you can do the same kinds of skills that we've been talking about, focusing on justice or truth or beauty or fairness or empathy and compassion. Oh, that's, that's so, so good. Yeah. Well, Thank you for everything today. And y'all listeners, please go out, pick up her book, um, Spiritual and Religious Competencies in Clinical Practice, Guidelines for Psychotherapists and Mental Health Professionals. Dr. Vieden, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHPodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.